Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black pew Bible like this under the chair in front of you. Go ahead and grab that. Turn to page 857, and it goes to 858 here. 857 to 858 in the pew Bible. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. We have two more sermons here in our series on Matthew 1 through 4, and then we're going to jump back to the Old Testament. So this one and next week. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. When he, that's Jesus, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Our Father in heaven, You are holy, holy, holy. Our Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come, you rule and you reign, and your reign is good because you are good. And so, Father, we pray now that your goodness would continue to spill over in us, in our hearts and minds, and in our church family, and among our friends here, our neighbors, as we meditate on your word. We pray that you would break light into our minds and eyes out of the darkness, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word, that you would soften our hearts to desire and crave your word right now more than material gain. We pray that you would unite us with a singular focus on your son, Jesus Christ, and on your word, and that you would satisfy us this morning with your covenant love, with your goodness, with your glory, with your light so that we might rejoice and be glad and walk in your light all the days of our lives. We pray that you would deliver us from the evil one who would seek to distract us and take the word out. By your Spirit's power, we pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up afraid of the dark. I won't tell you what age I stopped being afraid of the dark. Not to save myself from embarrassment, though that might be true. It's just I don't remember exactly what age. You know, there, there's something childish about being afraid of the dark. Uh, when, my, when my children, some, when, some of my older children were younger, or even now some of the kids, you know, when, it's, when we tell them, hey, go upstairs and get this for me, and they'll say, well, I can't because it's dark. And they're scared, even though it's their home and they've lived there for months and years, they're scared, not because they don't know what's there, but because it's dark. And they're simply scared of the dark. And sometimes as an impatient 
dad, I could just be like, there's nothing there. There's nothing to be scared of. Just go do it. I'll give you something to be scared of. I won't, I won't go that far, but, but maybe something along that line. Like, don't be scared of something that's not there. Be scared of me instead. Um, because there's an irrational fear, perhaps, of the darkness. There's something childish about being scared of the dark. But there is also something right about being scared of the dark. In the dark, we fear the unknown. Crime and evil acts in our society are often done in the dark because there's more secrecy there. There's less exposure. One of the ways we increase security even here around our church building is literally just putting up lights. Just putting up lights so there's no darkness for, for darkness to hide because in darkness, sin flourishes often. Sin and evil love the darkness. They get strength in the darkness. They multiply in the darkness. God made light for the day and darkness was for the night originally. But symbolically, darkness often refers to evil and sin. And um, that is why we are often scared because we're scared of evil committed against us. Now, we want to live in the light of life. First John 1 talks about how we ought to, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We love to live in the light. We love the safety of the light. We love the, the, the life that light brings to us. So we want to live in the light. And because we love our neighbors as we love ourselves and we want to grow in that, and because we love each other and we have loved ones in terms of our family and friends, we want to not only live in the light ourselves, we want to spread the light, don't we? We want others to feel the safety and the security and the love and the life that light brings to them. And so we want to channel that light to those around us. The problem is, that there is evil and darkness in this world and it can press us down and discourage us and even cause us to fear. And the problem is not, it's not that just the darkness is on the outside, but the darkness is on the inside. The darkness is even in our own hearts, in our own lives. We even have darkness in ourselves, if we're honest. That's why we would be scared. We are scared often when we think about the final judgment, when God exposes all of our thoughts and actions and feelings on the final judgment day when we're called to account, that is terrifying, isn't it? Because of the darkness not on the outside, but the darkness on the inside. And so we can often feel hopeless, defeated and discouraged, intimidated by the darkness around us, and then discouraged and defeated and maybe even depressed by the darkness inside of us. It is discouraging. Sometimes it feels like the darkness is just too strong and it's just going to win. Will it? Will the darkness win in your life? Will the darkness win in our lives? Will the darkness win in our world? God has a word for us this morning. In Matthew 4, 16, we read the text. So go back to Matthew 4, verse 16 here. And it says here in verse 16, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in in the land of the, and here's the word for darkness, living in the land of the shadow of death. That's the darkness of death. Those living in the land of the darkness or the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is good news. There is light in the darkness. There is light for those in darkness. There is light for those who have darkness within them. 
Lights are a symbol of hope. A person lost in a dark cave turns a corner and is relieved to see a ray of sunlight breaking through a crack. A person adrift on a life raft in the middle of the ocean at night is excited when he's able to say, I see the light of a ship on the horizon. One pastor theologian has wrote that. That's a quote from a pastor who preached a sermon on on God being light. Here's the main point of the sermon today. Here's the main goal. Because Jesus has come to bring the light, live in the light of Jesus. Or let me change it. Because Jesus has come to bring the light, receive the light of Jesus. Okay? Because Jesus has come to bring the light, receive the light of Jesus. If you need a place to take notes, there is a blank sheet here in the bulletin for you if you want to jot some things down there that might help you. Here's the, here's the good news of this passage. The darkness cannot defeat us if we receive the light of Jesus. The darkness cannot defeat us if we receive the light of Jesus. And so we want to hope in the light. We want to hear the light and we want to turn to the light. Okay, that's, the, that's what we're going to do for our sermon here. We want to hope in the light. We want to hear the light and we want to turn to the light. All right, so first of all, Let's hope in the light of Jesus. If we're going to receive the light of Jesus, we do it in three ways. Number one, hope in the light of Jesus. Look at verses 12 through 16. And there's two ways we're going to hope in the light of Jesus here. Look at verse 12. When when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So we hope in the light of Jesus. We hope in God's light when leaders are removed. Here, John the Baptist was a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. People were coming from all over the north and the south, the east and the west, coming to John at the Jordan River. And he was baptizing people in the Jordan River and calling them to repent from their sins because the kingdom was coming and the Messiah was coming. So John was this voice of truth. He was this voice of light. He was this water in a desert. He was an encouragement to those who were starting to feel hopeless. And then he spoke out against one of the leaders, King Herod in the north. He said, you're not supposed to be committing adultery. You're married. So that king locked him up in prison. And he was no longer able to be the light, to speak the light, and to preach hope and repentance near the Jordan River. He was removed. And so when John was removed, Jesus then moves He withdraws to Galilee. Now, who is John? He's this preacher. It says in John 1, 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. That's what John says in John chapter 1. Have you ever been discouraged when someone you really depended on left you? For whatever reason, it could be moving away. It could be personal failure on their part where they just let you down. It can be death. Have you ever been let down and discouraged and almost feeling like you're left in the dark because someone you depended on as a light in your life has gone away? When Moses led the people of Israel 
out of Egypt, he died before they got to the promised land. And a lot of people could have been discouraged by that. We're discouraged by that. Our leader is gone. After 40 plus years of leading us, he's gone. He's dead. And yet Joshua comes through to lead them into the land. Billy Graham passed away fairly recently. R.C. Sproul, some of you know the the theologian R.C. Sproul who passed away recently. We can have leaders who are voices of hope and light in our lives and in our culture who die and pass away and we could feel like we're in the dark. Even those who are in the persecuted church today around the world can have a pastor arrested, a leader, a spiritual leader, a discipler arrested and taken away where he is no longer able to lead and love his people. And that can leave us feeling discouraged and disoriented. If you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. Where do you look when important people in your life leave you and you're left in the dark? If you're not a Christian, we're thankful that you're here today, but just because you're not a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to be left. When you're left in the dark and those you love and trust leave you, whether by their will or not by their will, they leave you, where do you turn? If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you, brother and sister, don't be in despair when leaders or lights in your life are taken away. I'm not saying don't be discouraged. It is discouraging. But don't get stuck in despair and darkness. Don't get stuck in despair and darkness when the lights in your life are taken away like John being arrested. Don't be in despair because God is in control. God loves you. God has a plan for his people. And he is our greatest need and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Isn't that what Psalm 23 says? Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the the valley of the darkness of death. Sounds like what we read in Matthew 4, right? Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no danger. Why? For you are what? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Why? The Lord is my shepherd. He is your light and your salvation. Brother, Christian brother, Christian sister, don't despair when the human lights that God has gifted you with leave because God is your light in your darkness. One of my kids said to me fairly recently, Abba, they call me Abba, dad, daddy. Abba, I don't want you to die. And they were scared and holding my hand and saying, I don't want you to die. Now, I feel that sentiment even about my parents till this day. Of course, I'm scared of that. It's heartbreaking as a parent to see my little child fearing that I might die and literally having no power to say, don't worry, I'm not going to die. Now, I could say that. Perhaps I've said that in the past. But I don't want to say that because I can't say that truthfully, right? I mean, what if I actually said that to them and then I died? Like how much more damaging would that be? Because I can't assure them that I'm not going to die. I have no power to assure them of the length of my life. But you know what? God's promises are true and they're stronger and they're more powerful than my words. So I can tell my kids, even if I left, I don't want to leave you. I'll do my best to not leave you. But even if I leave, if God takes me away, 
God will never leave you. He will always be your light. What does this mean for us as a church? Church family, Bethany Baptist Church family, our lives and our church family, we share life and we lean on each other. And we even lean on each other heavily. And we're supposed to lean on each other heavily. That's what a church family does for each other. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. That's to the sharing of life. They meet each other's needs. And we de- though we depend on each other, ultimately we depend on who? God, right? Ultimately, finally, and exclusively, we depend on Jesus Christ himself. So in that sense, our church is always stable because our foundation is always stable. The darkness cannot defeat us if we hope in the light of Jesus. Now, we're not only hoping when leaders fall or are taken away in verse 12. Look at verses 13 through 16. So when John is arrested in verse 13, Jesus leaves Nazareth and he went to live in Capernaum by the sea, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So Jesus moves to Capernaum. This becomes his home base. It's a fisherman's town. And we're going to talk about that next week when Jesus calls his disciples and says, you will fish now for people. I will make you fishers of men. We'll we'll think about that next Sunday. But for now, he moves from Nazareth, which is in the southwest region, southwest of the Sea of Galilee, to the northern part of the, the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And there he goes to a fisherman's town. And it's in the region of Naphtali. Zebulun is the region where Nazareth is. Naphtali is the region where Capernaum is. And he moves there. And in verse 17, it says, from then on, from this move on, Jesus began to preach. This is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, if you don't know the answer to this, that's okay, but some of you do know the answer to this. Approximately how long was Jesus's ministry after his baptism, before he died? How many years? About three years, right? Three, three and a half years, okay? Now, let me break down these three years just briefly, just so you're aware of it. In year one, that's the year of, of obscurity. He's not really quite public in that about a first, the first trimester of his ministry. He wasn't quite public yet. He talks to Nicodemus in quiet. He goes battle Satan in the wilderness, but he doesn't go out publicly yet with his ministry. That's the year of obscurity. And then secondly, you have the year of popularity. This is beginning right here, He's going to begin to preach publicly, as we're going to learn next week. He's going to be casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching everywhere. And so he is going to be so popular that he can't even go into a house and teach because there's crowds everywhere following him. That's your popularity. And then in the the third trimester, towards the end of his ministry, we have the year of hostility. This is the year when the enemies are getting so fed up with Jesus and his popularity that they are determined to kill him. So you have the year of obscurity, the year of popularity, and the year of uh, hostility. And so this is the transition point here in Matthew 4 from obscurity to popularity. And how does he begin? He begins by preaching, but he begins by moving from Nazareth to, to Capernaum after John is in prison. John kind of fades out and Jesus kind of takes center stage here in Matthew chapter four. Now, why does he move? Why does he move? Verse 14 gives us the answer. Why does he move? Anyone? To what? This was to what? Fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So why does he move? To fulfill prophecy. So we need to hope in the promise and prophecy fulfilled, or hope in the God 
who fulfills his prophecies. God keeps his promises. Not one of them is broken. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And this prophecy is from Isaiah. And let's read the prophecy here in this passage. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. So Nazareth to Capernaum. Along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What's another word for Gentiles? Nations, ethnic people groups, ethnicities, really. Galilee of the Gentiles, of the non-Jews, the other nations. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. For, and for those living in darkness, a shadow of death, a light has dawned. So here, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. It says, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. So that's the northern part of Galilee. Do you remember that, the northern, that Israel broke up into northern and southern kingdom? In the north was the ten tribes. In the south were, was Judah and Jerusalem. That's where David's sons ruled. Which, which, went, which, uh, which kingdom, north or south, which one was conquered and kicked out first? North or south? The north, okay? The northern kingdom, where Galilee is, where Naphtali and Zebulun are, where Nazareth and Capernaum are. Why? Now, during Isaiah's time of his prophecy, they were kicked out around 722 BC by the Assyrians. About 150 years later, 120 years later, and then on, uh, Babylon conquers the south. The north was always easier to conquer because Jerusalem and the south has more hills. And when there's hills, there's more defense. And you could build towns on the hills, and it's harder to invade cities that are on hills. Okay? So in the north, it was easier to conquer the north. And Samaria, or the Galilean part where the sea is, if you got armies coming in, they need water, right? They need food. So where are they going to be near? the Sea of Galilee. They're going to take over that place. So, so Galilee of the Gentiles was Galilee of the Gentiles because whenever the Gentiles came through to conquer Israel or occupy, you always go to the sea first. And it was an easy win. So where did you have the majority? Where was the highest density of diversity in Israel in terms of ethnicities? Where were the Gentiles? In the north, in Galilee. That's where they were. It was, it, so the kingdoms went there first. That's where you conquered. And then you go down to Jerusalem. And so Galilee was Galilee of the Gentiles. The Assyrians, they mixed in kingdoms and they conquered other people and they mixed them into the north. So you had a, a, a very diverse group of people in the northern part of Israel in Galilee of the Gentiles. It was the most vulnerable part. It was the most culturally diverse part. It was the part where there was most idolatry and immorality because you could have different religions up there because there's so many different nations and ethnic people groups up there. And in this darkness of idolatry and immorality and confusion and the diversity, not that diversity is bad in and of itself today, but diversity in the old covenant, Israel was supposed to be pure and separate, right? So in this darkness of that diversity, that sinful diversity, comes light. Land of Zebulun, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in that darkness, in that shadow of death, a great light has come. A light has dawned. If you lived in that darkness, if you were in that discouragement as a, as a believer in God for all those years, you would want light. And Jesus was bringing that light. So what was the darkness? What was the darkness here that Jesus comes to dispel? You're here in Matthew. Turn to the left in your Bible to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. Chris read Isaiah 9 for us. That was page 607, right? 
I think it was page 607. You could correct. If someone wants to correct me on that, go ahead. But I think it's page 607 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 9. What is this darkness that Jesus, the light, is coming to dispel? We read, it's verses, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 is what's quoted, okay? Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 is quoted. But before we get to that quote, oh, let's look at the quote. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali, and the land of Naphtali. That's where Jesus was. But in the future, okay, Isaiah's writing 700 years before Jesus. In the future from Isaiah's time, God will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So in the future, there will be hope. In the future, there will be light. But for now, there's what? In Isaiah's time, 700 years before Jesus, there's darkness. There is darkness and gloom and distress and sin and evil. Why? Why would there be darkness on God's people in the land in the north? Go back a few verses to chapter 8, verse 18. Why is God putting his people in darkness? Look at chapter 8, verse 18 of Isaiah. Here I am with the children of the Lord. Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells in on Mount Zion. That's Isaiah talking about his, his children who were born. Remember, a virgin shall conceive and give birth in Isaiah 7, and part of that is, is Isaiah's children. Remember that? We talked about the double, prop, double fulfillment there. But look at verse 19. Isaiah continues, When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Shouldn't they inquire of the dead? Should, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. Okay, so look up here, brothers and sisters. So here's Isaiah. He's a prophet. He prophesied that he's going to have kids. That's going to be assigned to, to the people, to the king. He has a kid in fulfillment of that prophecy. So Isaiah is a legitimate prophet, right? He's a bon- like He is a proven, trustworthy prophet. And so now here are the people of God in darkness because Assyria is taking over the north. During Isaiah's time, the people are in darkness and discouragement. So where do they go for help? Where, 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 does, where do they go in verse 19? To spiritists and what? You see that in verse 8? Inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter. Where are they going for help when they're in darkness? To spiritists, to fortune tellers. Isaiah is a prophet. His prophecies have already come true in part. He is a proven prophet. And when they're in darkness, they don't go to God. They don't go to his word. They don't live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. They go to their spiritists. They go to their mediums. They go to their fortune tellers. They go to their parents. They go to their friends. They go to Facebook. They go to their news websites. They go to their favorite authors. Everyone but God is where they get their light for their darkness. And God says, are you going to go to the dead? to inquire about what life is like? Does that even make sense? Shouldn't you inquire of God and his prophet? What's the result? It said in verse 20, if they do not speak according to this word, there will be no what for them. In verse 20, the end of verse 20, there will be no what? No dawn, no light. 
You, you, you're, you're in darkness and you want to keep looking in darkness for light? Guess what? No light for you. No dawn for you. Verse 21, what's the result of this sin? They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward. Oh, now they're looking upward towards God. Great, right? When you're in trouble, they look upward to God. What do they do? Looking upward, what will they do? They curse their king and their God. They're not looking up to God to get help in humility and worship. They look up to God and say, why are you treating us like this, God? Why is my life like this? Why are we in this situation, God? Why would you put us and me in darkness? How dare you, God? They don't look to God for help. They look to God to blame him and to curse him and to curse his king. Verse 22, they will look toward the earth and see only what? Distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into what? Thick darkness. Sin breeds more sin. You give yourself to the darkness, don't be surprised that it gets darker. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what's happening here to them. They reject God. They don't worship God. They reject his word. And they test God. And then they complain against God when God doesn't come through for them. In other words, they fail the worship test. They fail the Bible test. And they fail the the favor test, that God's favor is on them. Does that sound familiar? Remember that a few weeks ago? Here's Israel failing the tests. And so the, the, the consequence is darkness and exile. You know, in, in, in the book of Isaiah, let me, let, um, you can look up here for a second. Let me just give you some ways that, I, that Isaiah talks about darkness. Let me give you four ways Isaiah talks about darkness. Sometimes darkness stands, stands for evil. So Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Is that happening in our culture? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So darkness is a symbol for evil. Secondly, darkness is a symbol for judgment. Isaiah 8.22 says, they will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, gloom. We just read that. That's the judgment for your sin. Darkness is also seen as a personal condition of your soul. So Isaiah 29.18 says, on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a document and out of deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Oh, there's hope. Out of deep darkness, because that's our personal condition, we are in deep darkness. Out of deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see because God will open some eyes. A fourth way that darkness is talked about in Isaiah is the people's situation. Isaiah 60 verse 2 says this, For look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness the peoples, all the peoples, the nations, the ethnic people groups. But the Lord will shine over you. And his glory will appear over you. So darkness stands for sin and evil. It stands for judgment. It stands for our personal condition in darkness. And it stands for our our people's situation of sitting in darkness. Where is darkness in the rest of the Bible? In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and empty. Darkness covered the 
surface of the waters, right? The darkness covered the earth, it covered the surface of the waters. And so you had this darkness and this disorderliness in the universe when God created, there was just matter. And then God said, what did he, what did he say on day one? Let there be light. He didn't say, let there be darkness. Darkness was already there. And he created light out of the darkness. He took the disorderly, the ruined, the not yet formed, and he made it orderly. He took the darkness and made light. Darkness is also in Exodus, I think, chapter 9, one of the, one of the ten plagues to Egypt. When they were in their sin and they were not repenting and not letting Israel go, God, God through Moses, sent darkness in the land. Now, this is weird. Because there was darkness in the whole land except where Israel was. How do you isolate light? Like, can you imagine like a wall of darkness and light? Like that the light doesn't shine through? Even like just, just where Israel is, there's light, but, but everywhere else there's darkness. But there was darkness all over Egypt except for where Israel was. And not only that, it says in, Isaac, in Exodus that the darkness was so dark that you could feel it in your soul. The judgment of God is darkness. That's why Psalm 23, walking through the valley of the shadow of death or the darkness of death. Death is dark. Revelation 22, 5 says that night will be no more. There will be no more night. There will only be light in the new earth because darkness is gone and death is gone and sin is gone. So darkness is a symbol for judgment for separation from God. Even even Nicodemus, do you guys know the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus? He comes to Jesus when? By what? By night, in secret. He doesn't want his friends to find out that he's talking to Jesus because they're going to get mad at him. And then and then Judas or then Jesus does the last supper. He washes all of his servants' feet, um, all his disciples' feet, and he he gives them the Lord's supper, and he says love one another, and he tells Judas, Judas, what you're about to do? He says, one of you guys are going to betray me. The one I give the bread to dips the bread in the drink, gives it to Judas. He tells Judas, Judas, whatever you're about to do, do it quickly. And then it says, Judas went out. And then John says this, fun, this strange comment, and it was night. We knew it was night. You do the Passover at night. Of course it was night, John. Why are you telling us it was night? It's not just the fact that it was night. It's a symbol. Judas goes to betray the Son of Man at night. Darkness flourishes in the night. Darkness multiplies in the night. Darkness works its workings in the night. And you know where else darkness is? Darkness, when, when, when hell is described in Matthew, it's described as darkness. That there will, it's not only fire and burning, it's darkness in hell. Fire without light. Imagine that. Fire without light in the lake of fire. Burning in darkness under God's judgment forever and ever and ever. And brothers and sisters, let's just be clear. Everyone here, whether you're a Christian or not, everyone here deserves the darkness of judgment because of the darkness of our hearts. Because of the darkness of our thoughts. Because of the darkness of our actions. Because of the darkness of our feelings. We were made to reflect God. We were made in His image to be reflections of God in this world. And what have we done instead? We have chosen to hide the light of God and not image Him, but image ourselves. We want people to be impressed with us. We want people to be there for us. We want people to center their lives, not around God, but center their lives around us. We have become selfish, self-centered, and evil. That's what sin is. We have the darkness in us. And so we deserve 
the darkness of God's judgment in hell forever. We deserve to die. But the good news is that Jesus shines his light in the darkness. Now, how is he our light in our darkness? Jesus is our light in our darkness because even though he was the light of the world, even though Jesus was the light of the world, when he hung on the cross at 9 a.m., he was there till 3 p.m. And at noon, what happened to the land? It became dark. And Jesus is hanging in darkness. The darkness of judgment, the darkness of sin, the darkness of the curse, the darkness of death, the valley of the shadow of death comes and moves on to Jerusalem and focuses on one of the three crosses. And the darkness of God that you could feel in the depth of your soul, the judgment of God on you, is placed on Jesus, hanging there on the cross in complete, not just physical, spiritual, actual darkness. And in the darkness, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does God the Father forsake the Son? Why does he judge the Son? Why does he put the darkness of judgment on the Son? Is it because the Son had sinned? No. It's for your sins and my sins. This is why light can break out of the darkness for us. Because Jesus was not delivered from the darkness. He was engulfed in it. He was victimized by it. He was, not because of his own life, he was guilty for it. Not by his guilt, by taking our guilt. But he was judged on our behalf. And so now we have the light of life. This is good news, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That Christ would take our place so that we can walk in the light, even though there's darkness in here. We've got a little darkness factory going on in here, right? And even though, even as Christians, we still produce darkness in our lives. And yet we can keep on taking that darkness and getting it swept up in the light over and over and over again because Jesus is our hope in darkness. If you're not a Christian, I have really good news for you. There is hope for you in your darkest of days, your darkest of moments, your most embarrassing and shameful of actions in your past and present. There is light for your darkness. Go to Jesus who died for you. Go to him. He died for your sins and he rose from the dead. God judged him so he doesn't have to judge you if you will, if you will turn to him. You know, Katy Perry, the philosopher Katy Perry, I should say, the poet, one of your own poets, Katy Perry, almost gets it right when she writes, do you ever feel like a plastic bag drifting through the wind wanting to start again? Do you ever feel so paper thin like a house of cards, one, from, one blow from caving in? Do you ever feel like you're already buried deep, six feet under screams, but no one seems to hear a thing? Do you know that there's still a chance for you? That's what I'm saying here in this passage, right? That there's still a chance for you. Now, her, her chance is, is not the gospel here. Her chance is, do you know there's still a chance for you in your darkness? Because there's a spark in you. There's a spark in you. You just got to ignite the light and let it shine. Just own the night like the 4th of July. Because baby, you're a firework. 
Come on, show them what you're worth. Make them go ah, ah, ah as you shoot across the sky, I, I. Baby, you're a firework. Come on, let your colors burst. Make them go ah, ah, ah. You're going to leave them all in ah, ah, ah. So she gets the fact that people are discouraged. It's actually a very encouraging song. I don't want to be too hard on her on this song because it is an encouraging song. And, and, and we are made in the image of God. So there is, we do have, you know, light in that sense that we're made in God's image. But we're completely sinful, right? Every part of us is tainted by sin and we are, we are, we are evil in our core. Our heart is desperately sick and deceitful. Who can understand it? So yes, we are made in God's image. So yes, there's light, but we have completely covered that in our own darkness and sin. And the solution is not to look inside and light up your own light again. The solution is look to, look to Jesus, who is the light, who shines the light in the darkness of the shadow of death so that we can have light and life. Church family, we are a community of light. So let's reflect God's light to one another. And, and um, let's reflect the light together to our dark and dying neighborhoods and among all the nations, all the ethnic people groups. The darkness cannot defeat us if we hope in the light of Jesus. So hope in the light of Jesus. Now let's go to the second and third one now. Don't worry, we only have one more verse, okay? Because we're at the end. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, verse 17. One last verse. Matthew 4, 17. Two more points from one verse. Chapter 4, 17. So we said, hope in the light of Jesus. Now hear the light of Jesus. Look at verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to what? What's the word? What did Jesus do? He began to preach. Jesus began to preach. So it's the thing he begins to do. The idea is that he's going to continue to do. Jesus was a preacher. He was an announcer. He preached regularly. The idea of preaching is the idea of announcing something. Announcing an announcement. Heralding a message. So preaching is proclaiming something, declaring something. It can be weak or authoritative. It can be done with good or bad intentions. It could be on TV. It could be a commercial. It could be a song. It could be behind a pulpit. It can be at your workplace. And its content can be true or false. Preaching is declaring a declaration. It's asserting an assertion. It's announcing an announcement, which can include arguing an argument. Everyone preaches. Everyone's a preacher. You're a preacher. Everyone, you're surrounded by preachers. Everywhere you turn and you hear people announcing messages, saying things, what you shouldn't, what you shouldn't do, what is true and what is not true, what is right and what is wrong. They are preaching. Everyone preaches. Preaching is everywhere. Even Madonna who's saying, Papa, don't preach, is preaching to her Papa to not preach to her. You can't not preach. Someone's got to preach. Someone's got to say something. Other people have to listen or not listen. And why do we preach? We preach to bring light. At least that's the attempt. Romans 2 says, Romans 2 verse 18 says, um, now if you call yourself a Jew and you boast in God and you know his will and you prove of the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in darkness, if that's who you are, an instructor to the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the full expression of the knowledge and truth of the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? What's the point there? If you say you're a light in darkness and you preach, that's what you do, are you guilty of violating your own preaching? 
Are you guilty of violating your own teaching? The point here is that everyone preaches and everyone preaches to bring light. The question is, who are you listening to? Who are the preachers you're listening to? It could be your own voice in your own head that bounces around a satanic thought, a sinful lie in your head bouncing around that you listen to over and over and over again. Who are you listening to? What are you giving your careful attention to? What are you giving the majority of your attention to? We want to preach the word, right? We want to preach God's word because we want God's, we want to hear the hope of the light. We want to hear the light of Jesus. That's why in our church, we, we attempt to practice what we call expository preaching. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Expository preaching. Expository preaching is when the words and the goal of the text of the passage, the words and goal of the Bible's were the words and goals of the the words and goal of the Bible controls the words and goal of the message. That's expository preaching. We're just preaching what is there. You should be doing expository preaching when you talk to people about God's word. Not necessarily get behind a pulpit and say, hold on, let me pull out my pulpit to your coworker. And they're like, what? And then you start, get behind, and you, you go off for 45 minutes. That's not what, we're, what preaching is only. It's declaring something. And if you're a Christian preacher, if you're a Christian with the message of the light of the gospel, you go to them and you tell them about the good news of Jesus according to the scriptures, where the words and goal of the passages you quote are controlling the words and goal of what you're saying to your friends, to your family, to each other. That's expository. And we need to, if Jesus is the one preaching, we need to be doing what? Listening, right? If Jesus is preaching, we need to be hearing. You know, we don't, and we need to listen carefully, don't we? We need to pay attention. Sadly, uh, one of the sad, tragic events this week on the news was the, the plane. You heard about the Southwest plane. Some of you did. One person passed away. And then everyone who's going to fly a plane soon is going to start thinking about that. I'm flying Southwest later this month. So I'm thinking about it myself. Where can I sit? That might be safe-ish, maybe. But I, I know what's going to happen when I, when I get on the plane uh, at the end of this month. When the, when the stewardess says, um, in case of an emergency, and they start giving directions, you know what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be paying attention. A lot more than I have the last 10 flights. Because of what just happened, I'm going to be carefully listening to the instructions because I'm scared a little bit, right? And, and, and so, but, so, but is, it, is it because only now are they going to be telling us the instructions or have they always been telling us the instructions? They've always been telling us the instructions. We just don't pay attention. Jesus is always preaching. We just don't listen. Oh yeah, I've heard it before. Yeah, Jesus, I know. I'm just supposed to sit here because that's what I do. I, I don't need to listen. I already know this. I already know the Bible. I'm, I've been a Christian for a long time. We don't listen, but we need to hear the light in our darkness. We need to listen carefully and think and wrestle with it. So brothers and sisters, application is very easy. Listen to Jesus and the Bible. Come ready and focused to listen. You know why we take a minute or two minutes after every message now to talk about the Bible? To increase our listening to not make it just another thing to listen to and then move on with your Sunday. I want you to stop and talk and listen again to somebody else talk about what we just heard because we need to listen. So don't waste, brothers and sisters, don't waste that two minutes after the message. Use them strategically. 
If you're not a Christian, here's what I want to encourage you to do. You have questions. We all have questions. But if you're, if you're not a Christian in particular, you have questions about who Jesus is and what God, what God says in the Bible. Those questions become clouds. And if you don't get those questions answered, those clouds become clouds of darkness that hide the light of the truth into your mind and heart. So if you're not a Christian especially, you need to ask your questions and find answers. In our church, we are not scared of questions. You need to ask your hardest questions. It's not because we know all the answers. That's not why we're confident. We just know God knows all the answers. And we're going to do our best to find it. And We're not scared to say we don't know when we don't know. But we'll try our best to answer your questions. But you better find out the answers to your questions. Or else you will cut the light off from your soul. And you will be accountable for that. So I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to seek answers. So that's secondly, okay? Hear the light. So first of all, hope in the light. That was our longest point. Hear the light. And lastly, turn to the light. Because the darkness cannot defeat us if we hope in the light of Jesus. The darkness cannot defeat us if we hear the light of Jesus. And lastly, the darkness cannot defeat us if we turn to the light of Jesus. What do you mean turn to the light? Look at verse 17 again. From then on, Jesus began to preach what? What's his message? What's his command? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what I mean by turning. Repent. If you're listening to Jesus, then you need to be turning to Jesus because Jesus is telling you to turn. He's telling you to repent. He's telling you to come to him. So, so repent. What does it mean to repent? It's the same thing John preached in Matthew chapter 3. Repent from your sins. Repent from your self-righteousness. Repent from your religion. Repent from your goodness. It's to turn from your self-reliance, your selfishness, your self-righteousness, and your personal goodness, and even your religion. Jesus is telling you to turn from your religion and turn to him. Understand that you're in darkness and in sin. Have a desire to come to the light. Look at the light. And then start walking towards the light. Ask God to bring more light into your life. Confess your sins. Name your sins. Confess them. And then turn from them. And ask God to give you the grace to hate it even more. How should you repent? You should repent quickly. Don't wait. Repent quickly. Repent frequently. If you're a Christian, you need to repent daily. If you're not a Christian, you need to repent daily. Repent publicly. That means tell other people, confess your sins to others and and, and get light on your sin that you might kill it. Sin flourishes in darkness, right? So confess your sins to others that you might bring light and weaken the sin and temptation in your life. Repent fruitfully. That means continue to apply what you're learning from your repentance. And then repent receptively. What that means is when someone confronts you, listen to this from 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient. Patient. This is what, this is what God's telling me and, and church leaders. Instructing his opponents with gentleness. So if a pastor has opponents, what is he supposed to do? Instruct them with what? Gentleness. Why? Here it says, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. You know what that means? That we have Christians in our church, church members, even sometimes leaders, can be captured by Satan and put in darkness. 
And so we need to instruct them with gentleness so that they might come to their senses and repent. In other words, when I say repent receptively, what I mean is, brothers and sisters, when a church member or pastor rebukes you or corrects you, don't let your defenses go up so high that that you cover the light. You can get so defensive that you're actually blocking out the light from coming into your soul. But be receptive when someone rebukes you. Be receptive. Listen and think about it. Now, why should we repent? Why should we repent in this, in this verse? Repent, why? Why is Jesus telling us to repent? Because what? The kingdom of heaven has what? Come near. Okay, Jesus is giving you a reason why you should repent. Repent because. Brothers and sisters, realize this about God's commands. God's commands are never arbitrary. God is never, he's not merely just giving you commands for command's sake. God always has a reason for his commands. God's commands are never raw commands. They are commands to cultivate communion with your creator and your king. Commands are gifts from God to you. They are channels of light to your soul. Don't be deceived by Satan and by your sin that would make you start to chafe and complain about certain commands of God on your life. Every command of God is good, even if we don't feel it, because they're invitations for you to enjoy God. And so he says, repent. Why? What's the invitation here? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the same thing as the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God It's the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God over his saved sinners in his curse-free place. That's what it is. The sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule of God over saved sinners in a curse-free place. We're moving towards that in heaven. Now, when it says the kingdom of heaven has come near, has the kingdom of God come or has it not yet come? How many of you say the kingdom of God has come? Raise your hand. It has come. Raise your hand. High and, and proud. Okay, some of you, it has come. All right. How many of you say the kingdom of heaven has not come? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you, how many of you have, now don't do this if you haven't done this. How many of you did raise your hand for both? Raise your hand if you raise your hand for both. Okay, the answer is both. Okay, the kingdom of God has, so you guys are all right and you're all wrong. The kingdom of God has come and the kingdom of God is coming. What do we mean it has come? The kingdom of God has come in a sense when Christ came into this world. In the incarnation, the kingdom has come. But then it's still near because it hasn't really been completely sealed until he died on the cross for our sins and said, it is finished. But when he finished it, the kingdom of God has come in his death. But then on the third day, he what? Rose from the dead. And so the kingdom of God has come in his resurrection. And then he ascends to heaven. And then he sends his Holy Spirit 50 days later at Pentecost. And the kingdom of God has come now in the spirit of God indwelling his people in the new covenant promise. But then what are we doing now? We are waiting for the coming of our king, right? And when Christ comes, will the kingdom come? In its fullness, right? And so we pray now, um, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the kingdom of God has not only come when Christ has come, but the kingdom of God is coming. And so what do we need to do? What is he telling us to do? Repent. Because the kingdom of God has come. Christ has come. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ has sent his Holy Spirit. And Christ is coming. So repent, 
brothers and sisters. Turn from your sins again and again. Non-Christian family and friend, repent from your sins because God will give you life and forgiveness if you will trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection for you. And as a church family, do you know we sin as a church family too? We don't just sin as individuals, we sin as a church family. Let us repent corporately. As a church family, we are responsible for each other. And when we, as a church family, let down one of our people and are are irresponsible for one of our people, that's why we're cleaning our membership role, we must repent. Repent, non-Christian. Repent, Christian. And repent, church family. Let's repent. Repent initially and repent continually. Repent personally and repent corporately. The darkness cannot defeat us if we turn to the light of Jesus. So what's my call to you, brothers and sisters? Receive the light of Jesus. He is shining on you today through his word saturating our gathering and through the people around you. Receive God's light. Brothers and sisters, non-Christian friend, God is trying to shine light on you here. Receive it. Put down the defenses and receive the light. If you do not, you will be dominated by darkness. And the darkness will grow darker for you. And it will grow darker for those around you. The light that you had or might have had is now dimmed and darkened to those that you love and would hope to bring the light to. And most importantly, if you do not receive the the light, you will end up in the ultimate place of darkness, in the lake of fire, forever and ever and ever. But if you receive the light... If you live by this light, if you live in the light of Christ, you will have the hope of God in our dark and cursed world. You will shine for Jesus and you will have the light of life. Though this was true for me as a child, we don't have to be afraid of the dark any longer. The darkness cannot defeat us if we receive the light of Jesus. Father God, we pray that we would receive the light of Christ. We ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our souls, open our lives to receive the light of Christ, to hope in his light, to turn to his light after hearing the light. Work in us, we pray, Father. Change us, shine towards us, shine on us, and then shine through us. By your Holy Spirit's power, according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.